What's gonna happen when Jesus comes back and we stand before God on Judgment Day? What's that gonna be like? God's wrath isn't easy. Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, go to plainfieldchristian.com. Enjoy today's podcast. Glad you're with us today. If you're joining us online, welcome. We are glad that you're here. And we do hope that you'll choose to join us in person. We got a lot of big things going on here in the next couple months in the life of our church. And we want you to be here for that. Uh, I heard a story recently about the famous author, Robert Louis Stevenson. And when he was a young boy one time, his nanny came into the room to put him to bed one evening. And she found young Robert just staring out the window into the night. And she tried to get his attention several times, but still nothing. He just remained fixed on this window. She said, Robert, what in the world are you looking at? And then she realized that Robert was watching the lamplighter walking down the street, lighting one street lamp after the other until young Robert piped up and he said, look, look at that man. He's punching holes in the darkness. <laughs> and that's what we do together, church. This is our mission. We, we punch holes in the darkness. We follow this guy named Jesus who came down, the son of God, and he said that he is the light of the world. And not only that, but he says that as we follow him, we are the light of the world too. Now we're gonna get to the sermon here in a few minutes, but for just a couple moments, can we just have a family chat first? Uh, because for 35 years now, Plainfield Christian Church has gotten to say, look at that man. He's punching holes in the darkness. And we have gotten to follow Steve White as he has shown us how to be the light of the world. And with every sermon he's preached, every funeral he's done, every wedding he's officiated, every call he's made, every early night, every, uh, every early morning, every late night, every time he has visited one of you in your home and been there at your deepest, darkest moments, this has been a man who's shown us how to punch holes in the darkness. Uh, Steve's final sermon here is gonna be January the 9th. That's just a few weeks away. And can I encourage you between now and then, now please be here. Uh, please uh, watch this man, listen to him, learn from him. He is setting us an example that we wanna follow. And so be here to learn from him, but also be here to honor him because we have an incredible opportunity coming up uh, to express our gratitude to he and Diana for how they have led and served this congregation. A few years ago, there was a study done of Christian leadership in the Bible and they found roughly a thousand examples of leaders in the Bible. And we don't know all their stories, but there's a fair amount of them that we get to know enough of their life story to be able to judge how they finished. And this story found that shockingly, 70% of the leaders we see in the Bible did not finish well. They either did something to forfeit their leadership, they, they slowed down, they stopped, they fell away. Only 30% of leaders in the Bible finish well. It's an incredible honor that we've been given as a church and a rare privilege to get to watch a man finish well, to, to not lose a step as he's getting older. So would you just join me these next few weeks as we get to speak the words of God to Steve and Diana as the body of Christ and we get to say to them, well done, good and faithful servants. Now, one of my favorite examples in scripture finishing well is the story of this guy named Caleb from the Old Testament. You might remember Caleb. Um, Moses, when, when the people of God are getting close to the promised land, Moses sent 12 spies into the promised land to say, hey, God, God said we can take this land, but what do you guys think it's gonna take to do it? And so these 12 spies go out there, but Joshua and Caleb are the only two spies who came back and said, yeah, those people are all bigger than us, but I'm pretty sure with God's help, we can take that land. 
And I love it because as Caleb's story continues, you see, he never loses that fighting spirit. And it wasn't until 45 years later after that, that the people of God actually do get to cross into the promised land. And when they do, by that point, Joshua is the one leading the people. And there's this moment where they're kind of divvying up the land. And Joshua is saying, hey, you guys conquer that section. You guys conquer that section to all these young men, all these mighty warriors. And Caleb, this old man comes up to Joshua and he says, hey, I'm every bit as strong and vigorous and ready for the fight as I was all those years ago when God sent you and me here to spy on this land. And I love this. Caleb says, give me the hill country. This is an 85-year-old man. And he says, give me the hill country. And with God's help, I'll take it. Now, listen, Steve's not 85 yet. He's close. <laughs> he's, not, <laughs> he's not quite there. <laughs> but I'm thankful that even now he has led us as a church. And he said, let's go take the hill country. And he has continued to punch holes in the darkness. He's finishing well. And so we wanna honor them, but we also wanna recognize that the work here is not done. And what God has started here 192 years ago, he's been faithful to continue through Steve and Diana, and he will be faithful to continue long after you and I are gone many generations from now. We're gonna keep punching holes in the darkness. We're gonna keep taking the hill country. I'm in a graduate school program right now. And in our last class, I got to sit under the teaching of one of my personal heroes, a man named Tim Keller, and Tim Keller talked about something that I think a lot of us have been feeling lately. That on the one hand, even though things don't look all that great around us, we know the church is not going away. The church is gonna be just fine. Jesus said the gates of hell are not gonna prevail against his church. But on the other hand, uh, the American church has perhaps the worst credibility we've ever had in a long time um, with unbelievers and, and around the world. And so Tim Keller said the way to get that back, the way to reclaim our gospel witness in this day and age is to show the world what a different kind of community looks like. A different kind of people, a city on a hill, shining light in the darkness kind of people that have this compelling unity where people who don't get along out there get along in here. So that when people see us, they say, see people who are serving and building relationships and worshiping and, and, and loving and laughing and eating together across racial lines and across socioeconomic lines and across generational lines, across preferential lines. We get to show the world what a different kind of community looks like. And as we move into the new worship center on January 16th, I believe with all my heart that God is doing a work among us to show the world what that kind of people look like and that he's drawing us to a kind of compelling unity where we get to show the world what it looks like to be a city on a hill. You know, our church is a lot different than it was two years ago. We've been through a lot, haven't we? And uh, one of the things we've noticed as we've watched people, how they've handled all the turmoil that's gone on. We've seen some people who've handled it really well and their faith has remained strong and, and others who have faltered. And one of the things we've noticed that for the people who've done well, there's, there's two key factors to them. Uh, number one, they were plugged into deep community that they were living life on life with other believers. They're doing faith together. And number two, they were actively serving. They were using their gifts for God's glory. They were deeply involved using their gifts, serving in God's kingdom. And conversely, the people who've not done so well are the people who are isolated, who didn't have those deep relationships. And the people who were not serving, they weren't plugged in using their gifts. They were more spectators rather than players in the game. 
And so I want you to be involved in what God is doing here because we believe that he is still gonna keep punching holes in the darkness and we want you to be a part of that. We want you to be able to find a place to use your gifts and be plugged into deep relationships where you are passionate in the way that God has wired you. As one uh, Bible teacher says, where your deep gladness meets the world's deep hunger. We wanna help you find that place. You can always go online and register to serve if you're interested at mypcc.info. Click on the serve tab. But we believe that God's gonna help us take the hill country and we're gonna keep punching holes in the darkness, all right? Okay, family chat over. Let the sermon begin. Uh, Let's pray. God, we love you. And we're so grateful that in this season where we get to sing that song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, we know that you are Emmanuel, that God is with us, that you came to us in the person of Jesus, that you're with us now through the presence of your spirit. And we know, Lord, what you say about your word, that when it goes out, it won't come back to you empty. It will always do what you want it to do. So we're asking simply in this moment with us that you would let your word have its way among us. We wanna hear what you have to say today, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Uh, In the year 1952, there was a young woman by the name of Florence Chadwick who stepped off the coast of Catalina Island determined to swim to the mainland of California. It was gonna be a 26-mile swim. Now, Florence Chadwick, she was not brand new to athletic feats like this. She became the first woman in history to swim across the English Channel both ways. But on that day, as she was preparing to swim to the mainland of California, the weather was foggy and it was cold. There was horrible visibility. She couldn't even see the boat that were accompanying her on this swim. And yet she, she hopped in and she decided to swim anyway. And she swam for 15 hours. And yet eventually it just became too much. She was just physically and emotionally exhausted. And so she gave up and she was pulled out of the water. And only then did she discover that she had quit less than half a mile from her goal. I'm sure she was crushed. And at the press conference the next day, Florence Chadwick, she said, all I could see was the fog. I think, she said, I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. And so we wanna close out the year together as a church by just fixing our eyes on the shore. Uh, We've spent this whole year, as some of you know, in going through the writings of one of uh, Jesus's 12 disciples, a guy named John, who is Jesus's best earthly friend. And we walked through the gospel of John, which are these stories that John has recorded for us about the life of Jesus. We walked through three letters that John wrote to some ancient churches. And we've been walking through the last few weeks, this letter of revelation that that John also wrote for us. And so we're closing the year, like Steve said, in the book of Revelation, talking about the arrival. Because at this Christmas season, when we're focusing on Jesus's first coming, we also want to focus on his second. And I actually believe that maybe the best way to understand Jesus's first coming is to look at it through the lens of his second coming. So we're going to fix our eyes on the shore. You know, the Bible talks a lot about the second coming of Jesus, of what what that arrival will be like. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul's saying, hey, church, keep your eyes on the shore. Encourage one another with these words because he's coming soon. And over and over again, Paul himself does this in places like Philippians chapter three, where Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Titus chapter two, Paul says, but we wait for the blessed hope. What is our blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and savior, Jesus Christ, 
who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And this one might be my favorite of all. Revelation chapter two, verse 20. It's the second to last verse in the whole Bible. And this has been the prayer that Jesus' followers have been praying for centuries. He who testifies to these things, that's Jesus, says, yes, I'm coming soon. And John responds just by saying, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Would you just join me in saying that right now? Let's say, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Absolutely. We wanna fix our eyes on the shore. And so for the next four weeks, we're gonna look at Jesus's first arrival in light of his second. First, Jesus came in weakness, but then he will come in power. That first he came as a servant, but then he will come as a king. That first he came to die, but then he will come to live forever. And today, today we gotta deal with this tension of salvation and judgment. Because on the surface, I guess kind of when I set out, it, it looked like that the first time Jesus came, he came to save, but then he will come to judge. The Apostles' Creed says he will return to judge the living and the dead. And that's absolutely true. But the more I thought about it, the more I think that, you know, Jesus' salvation and his judgment, they aren't these totally separate things. In fact, I'd like to make the case today that God's judgment is a good thing. I'd even go so far as to say it like this. I'm thankful for God's wrath. I am thankful for God's wrath. And now I understand God's wrath is not a particularly popular topic to discuss. We've got a lot of churches here in the area and you drive by all these churches, they've all got different names. You know, First Church of God's Love, Grace Church. I've never driven by a church called the First Church of God's Wrath, right? Just like not a popular thing to talk about. And I've got a book over there in my office called When God Whispers Your Name. I don't have a book called When God Shouts Your Name just not one of those things. It's not easy to discuss. We don't sing to our kids, Jesus shoves me, this I know. God's wrath isn't easy. And maybe that's because we've seen God's wrath used poorly before. Maybe when I think, uh, when I talk about the wrath of God, what comes into your mind is pictures of those hard, bitter faces of people picketing with signs that says God hates whoever, you know. Or maybe some of you grew up in places in churches where preachers thunder down from the pulpit about God's righteous anger about all that's wrong in the world and all that's wrong with you without ever pointing to the sunlight of God's love. Whatever it is, God's wrath is not easy to talk about. And it's probably an odd place to start a Christmas series. I get it. But hang with me. Uh, for starters, the Bible's always our authority on these things. So let's just ask a few key questions about what's gonna happen when Jesus comes back and we stand before God on judgment day. What's that gonna be like? First question we gotta ask is, who will be judged? Who will be judged? And the Bible says, everybody. At Romans chapter 14, Paul says, you then, why do you judge your brother or your sister? And why do you treat them with contempt? for we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. So who will be judged? Well, everybody. And so then the second question we gotta ask is, what will be judged? Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter five. Paul says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So what's gonna be judged? Everything we've ever done, good or bad, in open or in secret. Everything we've ever done is gonna be judged. Now maybe, maybe you're thinking at this point, wait, why are Christians gonna be judged? Like, isn't what Paul said in Romans 8, chapter one, or Romans 8 verse one true, that therefore there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Well, yeah, that is true. If you are in Christ, 
If your name is written in the book of life, you're not gonna be condemned, but we will still face judgment, even as Christians. So why? Well, the Bible gives us two reasons. And the first reason is this. We will be judged to reveal God's grace. To reveal God's grace. Now, some of you are old enough to remember the Watergate scandal, right? That's like prehistoric. I was not around back then, back in the dark ages, right? But some of you remember the Watergate scandal and how as a part of that whole thing, it came to light that Richard Nixon had installed this secret recording equipment in the Oval Office to record all the conversations that happened in there. And he installed this uh, equipment to try to protect himself. And yet, ironically, it was those recordings that were then gonna be turned against him and used in court to convict him of criminal activity. It was the smoking gun tape some of you might remember. But when those tapes were turned into court, all of a sudden, it turned out that there was this one critical 18 and a half minute long section of tape that was missing, totally gone. Turns out Nixon's secretary had erased the tape. And listen, on the day when I stand before the judge of all the earth, and it comes time for my tape to be played let me tell you, there is a mountain of evidence against me. But lo and behold, where is it? Colossians chapter two says, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Jesus has erased my tape. Come on, church. <laughs> we can get a little loud here. Y'all need to attend the Congolese service on Sunday afternoons. You can learn a thing or two, all right? Let me say that again. Jesus has erased your tape. Yeah. That's the first reason we're gonna be judged because God's gonna reveal his grace that Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection and you're surrendered to him. He has erased your tape. Second reason we're gonna face judgment is this, to grant our rewards. Now, we already know that, that scripture says we are gonna be saved by grace, not by works, so that nobody can boast. Listen, there's nothing that you can do to save yourself, to earn your way onto God's good side. It's not gonna be based on your works. However, our works will still be judged. We are still gonna face a final evaluation of how we have used what God has given us, whether or not we have wasted our lives. And that will help determine our level of reward in eternity. Scripture talks about this in a lot of different places. One of them is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul's talking to the church about what we do with our lives, the things God's given us. And he says this. He says, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Now notice in that text, both builders are saved, but one gets a greater reward than the other based on what he did with his life. And the same is true for us who follow Jesus. I was having a conversation a few months ago now uh, over lunch with uh, Jeff Fall, who's a preacher down in Mooresville at Mount Gilead, a good friend. And he referenced this text. He said, you know, we all know that everything we do, our works, it's all gonna be judged by fire. He said, and it feels like during this COVID season as a church that we've gotten a foretaste of that judgment and that God has kind of burned away all the chaff and the hay and the straw, all our vision statements and programs and great ideas. And we've gotten down to the molten core of what was actually there, what our discipleship, what our faith really was. 
and that it wasn't quite as much as we hoped it was. It's convicting, isn't it? We know we're gonna face a judgment someday. And so the next logical question is, when that day comes, when all this happens, what are we gonna think? Are we gonna be embarrassed? Are we gonna think we got ripped off? <laughs> that, that, that God kind of shortchanged us? Are we gonna be sad? No. Uh, scripture shows us that the voices in heaven in Revelation chapter 16 Upon witnessing God judging all of his creation, the voices of heaven say this, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. I don't know exactly what's gonna happen on that day, but I do know that every single one of us is gonna look at God and what he's done. We're gonna say, yes, Lord, you made the right decision. So then this brings us to our last and most painful question. What happens to the condemned? What about those who did not follow Jesus in this life, whose names are not written in the book of life. And this is heavy, but, but here's what God says. Second Thessalonians chapter one says, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and marveled at among all those who've believed. And Revelation chapter 14 says it like this about those who do not worship Jesus. It says that they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night. It's heavy, isn't it? And when we read texts like this, I can kind of understand why some people come to the Bible with a highlighter in one hand and a pair of scissors in the other. They come with the highlighter for the verses they like about peace in the storm and God being with you and how much he loves you and answering prayer. And they like to highlight those verses, but they've got the scissors for those other verses to take out the pieces about judgment and wrath and holiness and obedience because sometimes they're uncomfortable. But listen, we are committed to preaching the whole counsel of God which means that because God talks about this, we gotta talk about this. But why Christmas, right? Seems like a weird time. <laughs> and here's why. Because I believe that we will not be sufficiently grateful for our savior until we understand what he has saved us from. And yet sometimes we read texts like this and we still think, really? Like how, how can you say you're thankful for God's wrath? And it's okay to wrestle with that. Even people in the Bible did too. Can I tell you a story? It's a true story. It's from Genesis chapter 18 in the Old Testament. You could go read it later. But it's a story of this man named Abraham and he had a really special relationship with God. And so Abraham lives near this town called Sodom. And Sodom is a wicked, horrible, awful town, did despicable things. And so God says, hey, listen, Abraham, you need to see how my justice works because the sins of Sodom are so great that I'm gonna judge that town. And the idea of God judging this town, it makes Abraham really uncomfortable. And so he asks God this poignant question that we're asking today. He asks God this question in Genesis 18, 25. He says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? I mean, God really is, surely not everybody in Sodom is, is all that bad, Right? And so Abraham actually enters really boldly into this conversation with God in prayer, just like we can, and he even begins a negotiation with God. Abraham says, well, well God, what, what if you find 50 righteous people 
in that city. Would, would you still destroy it then? Like God, is your judgment actually right? Is your wrath really fair? And God says, okay, if I find 50 righteous people in the city, I'll, I'll, I'll spare the whole city from destruction. And so Abraham boldly continues this conversation with God. He says, well, what about for 45? What if you find 45 righteous people? Will you still do it? And God says, if I find 45 righteous people, I'll, I'll spare the whole city of Sodom. And boldly, the negotiation kind of continues. Abraham asks, well, well, what about 30? What about 20? What about 10? And God says, yeah, for 30, for 20, even for 10 righteous people, I won't destroy them. But then all of a sudden, right there, the, the conversation just stops because we find out there weren't even 10 righteous people in the whole town, and so the place is destroyed. And yet we're left wondering, will the judge of all the earth do right? Like, what if that conversation had continued? What about for five righteous people? What about one? Would God spare the whole city from the wrath of his judgment on behalf of one righteous person? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Now, let me give you two reasons as we close today why the judge of all the earth will do right and why even in the face of this, I'm, I'm still thankful for God's wrath. Here's reason number one. God's wrath is the enforcement of his justice. God's wrath is the enforcement of his justice. God has hardwired into the human psyche this impulse toward right and wrong. You'll find it out. Go this week and go steal a little kid's toy. What will they say to you? They'll say, that's not, yeah, that's not fair. Martin Luther King Jr. said it like this. He said, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And the reason that it bends toward justice is because God, the judge of all the earth, enforces his justice by unleashing his wrath. And deep down inside, I think you want this. Uh, there's an author named Mark Buchanan who tells the story of a man whose younger brother had Down syndrome. And Buchanan writes this. He says, one day when they were boys, some kids surrounded his brother and started calling him names shoving him from one to the other. His round, thick-set face grew taut with fear and bewilderment. The older brother watching this was at first afraid, but then he got angry, right good and angry. And he wasn't physically big and he was badly outnumbered, but in his anger, he grew and his strength multiplied and he waded in and he whipped the whole lot of them. And stories like that resonate somewhere deep down inside us, don't they? Because we know that in the face of injustice like that, anything short of anger, anything short of wrath would be weak. It would be pusillanimous. There's your word for the day, pusillanimous. It literally means small spirit. To shrink back in the face of evil would be pusillanimous. It would be cowardice. And I want a God who's gonna do something about injustice, don't you? This picture haunts me. We see a little girl in Sudan, shrunken, starving, slumped over, unable even to stand, but look what is standing in that picture. A vulture in the background just watching and waiting for the inevitable. A man named Kevin Carter took this photograph. It won the Pulitzer Prize. And shortly afterwards, he took his own life when I look at this picture, I want a God who's gonna do something about that. 
Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The author, Ernest Hemingway, he wrote a lot of stories, but the shortest one he ever wrote was just six words long. Some said it was his most powerful work because it was his most personal. It says, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. Some of you know that pain. And in a world with brokenness like that, I want a God who's gonna do something about that. When I hear stories of mothers burying their sons in caskets draped with flags and 21-gun salutes, I hear stories of children bouncing from foster home to foster home feeling uncared for and unwanted. When I hear a story of yet another school shooting this week, when I hear stories of 13-year-old Congolese boys being captured and taken as child soldiers trained to kill, when I hear stories of 10-year-old Cambodian girls sold into slavery to be trafficked, I want a God who's gonna do something about that. C.S. Lewis says the anger is the fluid love bleeds when you cut it. And the good news of God's wrath is this. We do not serve a pusillanimous God. We do not serve a God who shrugs in the face of evil. And a day is coming when he is gonna wade into the middle of all of our enemies and he's gonna whip the whole lot of them. So keep your eyes on the shore, church. Because a day is coming when Jesus is gonna come riding back on a white war horse with a sharp double-edged sword coming from his mouth and Revelation chapter 19 says, with justice, he judges and makes war. And he will rescue the world by unleashing his wrath on the sin, the death, and the evil that have messed with the people that he loves. And Satan, the bully of this world, will finally be thrown into the lake of fire. And in that moment, it is not wrong to feel a sense of holy satisfaction. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Yes, he most certainly will. You see, in order for God to be savior, he also has to be judge. God's judgment and God's salvation can't be separated. And so today I'm thankful for God's wrath because it's the enforcement of his justice. That's the first reason. But the second reason is this. I'm thankful for God's wrath because it's the extension of his love. And if we really do want a God who will deal with the evil of the world, then he's also got to deal with the evil in me. Because Ephesians chapter two says, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And when I look at my own heart, I know that's true. I know how many times I've said, no thanks God, I'll do it my way. And I've rebelled against him and I'm rightfully deserving of his wrath. So how is the judge of all the earth gonna do right with me? We're back to Abraham's question, right? What about for 10 righteous people? What about for five? For one? Would God spare those in rebellion against him for the sake of one righteous person? And the answer comes 2,000 years ago with a baby in a manger. And God himself arrives on the scene as an infant. And the angel tells Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, you're gonna give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means the Lord saves. And we see that he will spare people for the sake of one righteous person. You see, my confidence for Jesus's second coming comes based on what he's done and accomplished in his first coming. And I know that when he returns, my eternal destiny is gonna be judged not based on what I have done, but on what he has done for me. You see, some people don't like talking about God's judgment and God's wrath because they see it as incompatible with God's love. 
But ironically, when you take away God's judgment and God's wrath to try to make him more loving, you actually make him less. Because the depth of God's love is proven by his willingness to experience judgment and wrath on our behalf. I've used this illustration before, but uh, back in the pioneer days, sometimes a fire would start and uh, the wind would just set this wall of flames roaring across the prairie. And the wind would be blowing this wildfire so fast that not even a horse could outrun it. And so if you're a, a family of settlers there on the prairie, what are you gonna do? You can't escape this thing. Well, you could light a match and you could burn this patch of ground. Light your own little fire right here, right where you're standing. And then you could stand right there on that burned patch of ground so that when that wall of flames get to, gets to you, it will find nothing to consume and it will pass on by and you will be saved because you're standing on a burned patch of ground. And listen, Jesus is our burned patch of ground. <laughs> that he has taken our place, he has absorbed the judgment and the wrath that we deserve. First Peter chapter three says, for Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Romans chapter five, Paul says, since then we've now been justified by his blood. How much more will we be saved from God's wrath through him? And yet, for those who have not yet surrendered to Jesus, for those who are not standing on that burned patch of ground at the foot of the cross, Jesus himself says in John chapter three, whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. So listen, my friend, if you have not yet surrendered to Jesus, if you're not standing on that burned patch of ground at the foot of the cross, please come talk to us. Don't put it off because yes, God is the righteous judge of all the earth and he will do right, but he will also shower you with his grace and his love because of his son who's absorbed his wrath on your behalf. So if you've not surrendered to him, please do. You can go to the mypcc.info, tap on the baptism tab. You can come talk to one of us anytime. Jesus has already done all that is necessary so that when that day comes, you and I can be confident in his second coming because of what he did in his first. Let's pray. King Jesus, we love you and we praise you for what you have done to save us. And we praise you even for what you will do to judge when you restore justice on the earth. And so until that day, Lord, we join with your followers for centuries who have cried out, come, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love and our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.